Welcome to German Martial Fund's Out of Order podcast. I am Nadia Kovalčíková, program manager and fellow with GMS Alliance for Securing Democracy in Brussels. Today, I am excited to be here with Dr. Benedetta Berti, the head of policy planning in the office of the Secretary General at NATO, author of several books, I think four, if I'm not mistaken, and a fellow at various international institutes. Thank you very much for joining me today, Benedetta. Thank you. Good to be here, Nada. We soon conclude the year 2020, which has brought us many challenges beyond other things, the global health pandemic, uh, economic crisis, and new security challenges. It also represents a year of significant whole of society digital transformation. Also, the most recent NATO meetings of ministers of foreign affairs and defense took place online. And as we look uh, to a new year that is sure to bring some more challenges uh, and changes to transatlantic security, how has this digital adaptation impacted NATO's working processes and your own work? And uh, do you think it will have a more lasting impact? I think it's. I think we're still still very much in the middle of, of figuring out what what this pandemic will change and how it will change our lives in all sorts of ways. And I think NATO is no exception to that. I would say that on the one hand, it was very reassuring to see how a defense alliance, which obviously needs to be able to operate seamlessly, regardless of what's of what is the external con- context, that I think it was very reassuring to see how quickly we were able to adjust uh, to this new normal, of, to this post-COVID new normal of uh, having secure meetings via VTC, and we were able to keep the, the regular pace of work as much as possible. We were able to uh, to have ministers meeting virtually and uh, take the important decisions that needed to be taken for our security and for our defense. And of course, we were able to maintain our deter- a credible deterrence and defense posture, which is really uh, incredibly important to make sure that the health crisis doesn't really become a security crisis. So I would say that on the one hand, the, the glass is definitely half full in terms of how we've been able to adapt. But uh, I have to be frank and to say this has been a big disruption for everyone, for their way of life, for the way of life and their way of working. Uh, organizations such as NATO, but I'm sure this applies to many governments, are very used to working through face-to-face meetings. So it has been a big cultural shift to 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 go to a virtual mode of working. And of course, we cannot do it 100% because when we work with classified information, we still have to... To, to meet face to face. But uh, I'm hopeful that some of these new ways of working will continue even when things go back to normal, whatever that will be, uh, because I think it, it shows that it is possible to increase the pace of consultation for NATO. And that's very good for an alliance that wants to be more political going forward. And uh, also, when uh, when we speak about going forward, uh, on the 8th of June, uh, NATO Secretary General launched his reflection process on the future of NATO, which I had the pleasure to moderate. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this review process and your role in this process? And did this pandemic somehow change uh, the process as such? That's a good question. I would start with the last point. I don't think the pandemic necessarily changed what we're trying to achieve. Of course, it did change some of the ways 
through which we approach this uh, this reflection, because of course. Uh, a lot of it so far has that to be conducted virtually, but nevertheless, I think that the foundations uh, remain the same. And to to give you a quick overview, uh, as you know, the last at the last at the last NATO leaders meeting in December, uh, NATO leaders asked the Secretary General to to look at the future, to look at the future of NATO, and this is why he decided to launch NATO 2030. Uh, the reference is very explicit. We want to look 10 years ahead and see how do we build to, on all the changes that NATO has that been able to, to undertake in the past few years and how do we really future-proof the alliance. So that's the, big, uh, that's the big challenge. The 10 years ahead, I think it's a very wise way to look at it because it gives us a chance to really set up, set up a political vision, a strategic vision, and also to, to make the point that our security environment is really changing in, in ways that are very significant and we need to adapt accordingly. So in terms of how this is being done, um, the Secretary General launched the process in June. He will conclude the process at the next NATO summit in 2021. And this is when he will present uh, recommendations, concrete recommendations on how we need to adapt. He has said that he has three priorities to make sure NATO remains strong militarily, because that ultimately that, that is the foundation of everything the alliance does. He also said we need to be stronger politically. So he says allies need to use NATO more to make sure that he really truly remains the main transatlantic forum for consultation, coordination, and joint action on everything that has to do with our shared security. And finally, say we have to be more global. NATO is a regional alliance. That's not what be more global is about, but a global outlook is how do we really tackle global challenges? And of course, how do we work more with our like-minded partners? So this is a little bit um, the gist of NATO 2030. And there's a lot happening, of course. Uh, the Secretary General has wanted from the beginning for this process to be engaging. So he has set up a series of dialogues with civil society, with youth, with the private sector. He appointed a group of experts which just delivered a recommendation. So there's a lot of moving parts to this initiative. And ultimately, it will be up to the Secretary General to really take all this input and come up with uh, recommendations that allies can, can approve and can, can agree to. And thanks for mentioning the, the recent uh, report being published by the expert group, which uh, is actually entitled United for a New Era. So there will be a new era in the next decade. Um, and it seems that it was quite well received by the foreign ministers uh, at the ministerial so far uh, as one of the inputs for this process, as you mentioned. And one of the recommendations in the report uh, is about updating the NATO's strategic concept to address the changing geopolitical environment. And uh, in your opinion, uh, in which strategic areas do you see the biggest need for the alliance to revise its strategic approach? You mentioned the three priorities, which uh, you already work on. But according to you, which one is like the biggest strategic adaptation that needs to be done? Well, that's a really good question. And uh, first of all, I, I know that the recommendation of the, of the expert group about updating the strategic concept is drawing quite a bit of attention, and rightly so. Uh, to put it in context, I think that that is that is something that uh, the NATO Secretary General had called for a few months prior. 
just to say that there is a convergence of thinking between external and internal on the fact that our security environment is changing. But most importantly, if we take the 2010 strategic concept, which is an excellent basis, and a lot of it is still absolutely relevant to today. At the same time, there are some important areas that have not been addressed because 10 years ago, the world was a different place. 10 years ago, we didn't think of terrorism. Uh, we didn't, very few had heard of ISIS. We didn't think that a terrorist group was going to be able to hold large swaths of territory and rule over population. Uh, 10 years ago, we didn't think that cyber and hybrid threats would become as sophisticated and disruptive as they are today. 10 years ago, we didn't have the impact, the security impact of climate change uh, enough in the analysis because it was it was it was still as one factor, but it wasn't it wasn't given, I would say, the political, strategic, and military importance that it deserves. So these are all areas that I would imagine allies would want to to revisit in looking at a new strategic concept. Um, again, ten years ago, Russia had not illegally annexed Crimea. Uh, the way we looked at Russian behavior was very different. Uh, so I think a new strategic concept needs to reflect what has happened over the last decade and uh, and, uh, and act accordingly. And then very uh, last but absolutely not least, 10 years ago, we weren't thinking about uh, renewed geopolitical competition. The, the old strategic concept uh, does not... Uh, think about the impact, the challenges and opportunities, but broadly the impact of the rise of China because the world was different uh, 10 years ago. So I cannot imagine uh, a, a new strategic concept not wanting to go into all of these areas. And of course, looking at the impact of these trends on the international order, on the global balance of power, and ultimately on our security as allies. So I would imagine these um, these areas would be very important to address. And of course, last the last, last one <laughs> is that emerging and disruptive technologies were treated as an important factor, but today we know that they're so much more significant in the way wars are, con- are developed and fought and won. And so we need to think about it much more carefully. So these would be some of the areas I would, I would imagine we need to, uh, to integrate in a new vision. So a lot of areas, and I'd like to break it down a little bit and maybe go from the end of your um, strategic uh, uh, vision, what what needs to be approached uh, more. So you also mentioned uh, the rise of China and also the NATO summit where China was mentioned as as another area where we need to get bigger understanding and perhaps spend more time and resources uh, to uh, address uh, the rise of influence of China, but you also mentioned Russia and how this decade actually really changed a lot our work with Russia and our uh, approach towards Russia. So um, considering this next decade, um, what do you think that NATO may start doing differently to deter Russia's and or China's potentially increased aggression, if you think that there might be even increased aggression, including in the information space? Um, and when it comes to more, as you also highlighted, technological and economic aspects, uh, uh, do you envision more cooperation with partners such as the European Union? 
on the second question, I would say yes, that's that's a trend. It's a good trend. NATO EU cooperation uh, has increased and improved in recent years. But uh, I do believe I am in the camp. I am among those who believe that it should be even uh, even more strategic, even closer cooperation. And I think when it comes to broad global challenges that really require all of the tools in our toolbox, um, then NATO and, e- and the EU should really uh, work very closely together as they do represent two different, uh, two different manifestations, but ultimately of the same values and of the same, um, same belief in a rules-based international order. So in that sense, I do believe we should work um, more closely together. When it comes to your first question, which is incredibly important and difficult in terms of how to how to update our deterrence when it comes to um, hybrid threats or threats that are non-conventional and that challenge us below the spectrum, if you wish. There's much to be said. I will just focus on one aspect, and I would think that one of the priorities to do better in this in, in this domain is to work on resilience. And I think resilience is really the ticket here, uh, in the sense that when it comes to deterrence, when it comes to preventing, mitigating, deterring hybrid attacks, uh, it's so important that we build up our capacity to resist to, to uh, bounce back and ultimately to, to be resilient as societies. Um, so for me, one of the key areas of work of, for NATO going forward is really to continue, but with a stronger emphasis to support allied resilience and to really serve as a forum so that we can have much greater convergence amongst allies. So we have the same standards, so that we have a resilient, similar resilient standards when it comes to our physical infrastructure, our digital infrastructure, issues like 5G, uh, but also ultimately our the security of our supply chains and ultimately also how do we protect our societies and our industries and how do we address economic vulnerabilities that have security impacts. And this would be, of course, um, foreign direct investment into our critical infrastructure and foreign ownership. The question, These are questions that have security implications. So I do believe that um, we should work closer through NATO to have greater convergence on these issues. And I think that would help us in being more resilient and in turn that will also help us in deterring um, hybrid threats. These are very uh, strong points. And I'd like to build on this impact on the society, as you said, and this kind of the whole toolkit that we need to deploy and the, um, the impact it has on different sectors, different uh, parts of society. And um, with, uh, with your expertise in human security and democratization, what would you like to have uh, on so-called de-escalation menu, which was also mentioned in the report, employing more of this political role, strengthening this uh, diplomatic political aspect of NATO's uh, strategic approach? And uh, how can this de-escalation menu that, uh, um, that uh, you would uh, see would be the right menu um, would better address these rising uh, security threats in the next decade? That's another very, uh, very good question. Uh, I, I think that the starting point, of course, needs to be um, that as we look at the future, we need to work even more on our, on, on our non-military tools. 
And this means uh, coordinating better, discussing better. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm well aware, and I think that's the way it's going to be, that NATO does not own these tools, whether they're sanctions, whether they're economic, uh, economic state craftsmanship uh, tools in general, whether it's addressing disinformation. Allies have these tools, but NATO is the platform, I believe, where they should come together to discuss how they use it in a more concerted and coordinated fashion, because that's a great, that's a way to achieve greater effects. So when it comes to de-escalation, a lot of it for us will be continuing doing what we do, which is continuing to invest in the confliction mechanisms and maintaining our channel of military to military contacts open. I'm talking here with respect to Russia to ensure that we minimize the chances of accidents and incidents. So those type of engagements will continue to be important. Uh, but of course, uh, in a world in which we're challenged across the spectrum, then we also need to be much more deliberate, for example, in having common positions when it comes to arms control, when it comes to having common positions when it comes to uh, the future standards for the application of emerging disruptive technologies on in defense and security. Uh, a, 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 the applications of AI, for example, on defense and security, it makes sense as an alliance to, to think about what, what, what is the NATO position on this? What is this? What is, what is this, this 30 countries representing 1 billion people and a community of democracy? What is, our, what is our stance on these issues? So that's, I think, the direction that I would like to see when we think about a more political NATO. So not, not necessarily changing its core, not changing NATO's core mission, but using NATO more effectively so that allies can coordinate and, uh, and achieve greater coherence when it comes to these political decisions that have serious security implications. And as you mentioned, uh, and we are talking about more strategic approach and the future, uh, some days ago, you also organized the first NATO Youth Summit, which I think is a, is a great initiative to engage uh, and exchange views with younger generations. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, this effort? How did this come about? Because you would maybe thought, oh, maybe there could have been Youth Summit before. So what was the momentum, the trigger that made this happen? And um, do you plan to do such a, a regular summit, perhaps with the younger generations? Also a good question. So in terms of what triggered it, I think obviously the answer for me is simple. It's uh, with NATO 2030, the Secretary General has been very deliberate in using this as an opportunity to reach uh, not necessarily newer audiences, but to reach parts of society that maybe we haven't talked to as much in the past. Uh, NATO has always had programs to engage and involve youth. That is That is true, but when it comes to high-level engagement at the leadership level, we thought uh, that this would be an opportunity to really send a clear signal that the future generations matter. Um, we also think it makes a lot of sense. If you're thinking about security in 2030, then you want to talk to those who have the greater stake in the future, and those are the youth. There's no question. And I think there's also a responsibility when you're thinking of policies that look at the future, you really want to make sure you're safeguarding uh, the future of security and defense for everyone, and especially for those who will be there. And oftentimes, decisions about the future are made in room with nobody, uh, nobody from a young generation in the room. And we thought, if we can 
help in changing that with this new type of engagement, we're going to go for it. Uh, I think that the first youth summit, from our perspective, was very successful. There was a lot of uh, good ideas, a lot of good energy. I cannot tell you right now whether wh- what will come next, but I, I can tell you that engagement with youth will continue to be something very important to the Secretary General. So expect to see more. And building on the engagement um, conversation that we have now, do you think um, that there is something missing in the security field which could benefit from more uh, feminist perspective and more involvement of women, as many women uh, are impacted by the decisions in the security field? Um, do you think more involvement of women at different levels and different parts of perhaps policy and decision-making process could benefit a more safer future as well? Absolutely. And to me, it's, as, it's about equality, right? I think uh, decisions about security and about foreign policy are decisions that affect the whole of society. They affect everyone. So I think they need to be made in a way, they need to be made by a, consist- a constituency that is representative of what society looks like. And our societies are diverse, they are different. And so should the people in power making those decisions. So I think that we, it's very important that we try to open as much as possible decision-making processes so that those taking decisions are truly representative of the societies they're taking them on behalf of who they're taking these decisions. And involving women at all stages of decision-making seems to me at this point uh, such a given that um, that it is a regrettable but yet necessary point that you're making in the sense that I wish we didn't even have to uh, to make the case for uh, because it should be a given that everyone this is, that we need to have more representative decision making processes and involving women is a key step towards that. And you being one of these women in these uh, policy-making processes now at NATO, which is uh, probably the most influential political and military alliance that we have here. Um, and with your more research and academic background, and now being at NATO for, what, over three years, I think, uh, at this point, uh, how do you think this, all these aspects uh, that you bring and all this experience that you bring uh, uh, to policy work uh, has contributed um, to these efforts? Well, you, you would rather want to ask my colleagues because, but uh, let me say that I, I think this goes really well with my prior point that um, hiring a diverse workforce in all sense, geography, background, languages, any type of indicator is very helpful when it comes to making better policy decisions, especially in a time for an alliance like NATO, in a time where we are confronting so many different challenges that require so many different skill sets, tool, toolkits and expertise. Um, I think that the times where you can only have defense experts thinking about conventional defense experts thinking about security are long gone. Now we need cyber. We, we need people with uh, a strong expertise in cyber defense. We need people who understand disinformation. We need people who are a data scientist. And we need and we need the, the people like, like myself, I would say, that come more from a human security background and have done humanitarian work and, and, and have more of a field or conflict-based perspectives. I think only when we all come together, we can truly... Uh, we can truly come to to the best outcomes because the challenges 
we are confronted with are multidimensional and so must our responses be. So maybe just building on this diversity and, and inclusion as well in these uh, in these processes and these decisions uh, in international security and your fieldwork as well. You came uh, from working with people underground and uh, doing uh, and gathering data and doing the research. So what brought you to NATO? Why why did you think that now is the time and you wanted to uh, advance your uh, career in this direction? For me, it was always. I think a policy profile that we have a little bit less in Europe and that I think we should have a little bit more of is um, to look a little bit at our at our uh, American friends is to have more people in policy with an academic background and vice versa. Um, I thought after years being in academia and in think tanks and uh, really more on the outside of policymaking that that being inside policymaking would bring a completely different perspective. And I think I was right on that one that would ultimately um, add to my ability to to do research or to provide uh, grounded policy advice. And of course, I also think that it's good to have those with some academic experience or some non-governmental experience being in government to inject new ideas. So in other words, I think this rotating door that you have a little bit more in the United States would be a great idea for Europe as well. I I think it's starting. I see more people doing this. And uh, I think uh, I think it's a good recipe to 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 bring new perspectives again, but and also to to ensure that that there is a better conversation between academia and government and think tanks. Uh, because ultimately, uh, I think that makes for a better, better dis- policy decisions and better academic research. So everybody wins. <laughs> the win-win is always the best scenario. Um, if if I just go on the um, the first kind of impressions when you started working at NATO, was there anything that surprised you that maybe you did not expect or you thought would be different? Um, something that uh, uh, or was uh, or was exactly the same as you expected. Well, no, everything. I I I don't know about what what to respond because I don't know how much time you have. <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning, coming from 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 the field or from academia, it's such a different culture, such a different perspective on things that uh, that I would imagine I would need a lot of time to. To, to give you a good answer, but something that has been very, very different is, of course, the, the need to work in a much more fast-paced environment. And uh, gone are the days where, uh, where, one, where I could enjoy my academic freedom and uh, spend a few, a few days just reading up on one topic before even uh, formulating one thought about it. Now, it's, the stream of information is much more... Uh, much more intense so there is a different pace of working that I find very very interesting from uh, from my looking at it from my former academic hat other than that NATO is a microcosm uh, as every international organization so it has a lot of its own internal cultures and rules and uh, it takes a while to discover but overall I found it to be a fascinating uh, learning experience um, definitely and as you said uh, we could discuss uh, this and many other questions for much uh, much more so I'll just conclude with one uh, talking a lot about the future of NATO NATO 2030 the strategic vision I'd be interested in your uh, 
personal, but of course also professional strategic vision for a more democratic, uh, safer and sustainable society. How would you envision such a society? Great question. And I think that uh, I think part of NATO, to, I, I see this as building on what I was saying for NATO 2030 in the sense that if we agree that over the next decade, the international order, the international rule-based order, as we know, is going to be more challenged from within and from without, then I think a key task for all of us is to ensure that we do uh, protect it, that we do strengthening where it needs to be strengthened, and that we do look at filling some of the gaps that are there. Um, and of course, the area that I'm thinking the most is that that I come from, with, which is international humanitarian law. But I think that th this similar principle applies to everything, really, when it comes to defending the rule-based international order. And um, and I think when I when I think about NATO's NATO's role and how to help uh, how to help in fulfilling this vision, which I think is the vision that we need to definitely pursue. Um, part of it is how do we make sure that we use this tool, this unique platform, or you have the United States and Europe and Canada uh, sit together to forge common approaches. And I think if we can really think a little bit bigger when it comes to issues like resilience and think about also the resilience of our democracies and, and have those conversations about how do we move forward together as a community of democracies uh, to protect our common security, I think then we will be in a, in a better place. Uh, but that requires some diligent work to bridge some differences and also to recognize that our strategic interests far trump those differences when it comes to ensuring that we ultimately all live in a, in a world that is based on uh, uh, freedom, human rights and democracy. I think this is a, a very good ending to our conversation, considering that we are entering the new decade. We are entering the new decade in the transatlantic alliance with the new US administration. And uh, just to summarize the three key points, which I think are, are perfect for uh, concluding our uh, discussion is uh, we need to be more resilient. We learned that not only this year, but uh, already before. So we need to strengthen it, cooperate uh, with other democracies. Uh, we are not alone in this effort and we cannot do it alone. And also perhaps let's try to think bigger uh, next decade and uh, achieve bigger. Thanks so much, Benedetta. It was such a pleasure to discuss with you today. And uh, I wish you a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast. The show is produced by Zachary Tarrant, Rachel Tausenfreund, and me, Sydney Simon. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.